God's word in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me pray. Lord, as we just sang, would you let these ancient words, a letter written almost 2,000 years ago, but detailing truth that can change our lives. So would you speak through your word this morning, encourage, exhort, and bring faith in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to see how this passage in scripture call us to delight in obeying God because of what He did for us in Christ. Every year across the United States, farmers sow their corn seeds now with their GPS-controlled tractors so that come harvest time, they have a corn maze. But not just a corn maze, now they have a picture in them. Yet though you can't see the picture from the ground, if you get an aerial photo or a drone or something, you can see the picture. Once you enter that maze, though, it's all gone. All you see in front of you is stalk and stalk of corn. And if the maze is done really well, sometimes you even get lost. And until you pull the map out, you don't know how to get out of the maze. Well, in studying the Bible, we can get down in the corn maze, so to speak, and lose the big picture. It is the proverbial losing the picture for the corn, or perhaps the force for the trees. Last week, we finished the third chapter of Ephesians with our 22nd sermon. For some of you, that's too slow. For others, that's too fast. And then some of you are Goldilocks. That was just right. Well, I'm always open to constructive criticism. So if I'm going too fast or too slow, being too simple or too academic, please let me know. Yet the point is, we're at a crucial change in the letter, which we can miss as we've gone at a slower pace. Now, of course, we've got to remember, this was a letter. When this was written, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verses. However, those who made the division saw a clear change in the letter between what they called, and we still call, chapters 1 through 3, and chapters 4 through 6. What they saw was that in chapters 1 through 3, it mainly had statements of what God did for us in Christ. If you were to use grammar terms, they were indicative sentences. They were statements of fact. In contrast, in the last three chapters, there are going to be 40 commands. Or again, to use grammatical terms, imperatives, things we do. In other words, Paul spent the first half of his letter, the first three chapters, delightedly expounding on what God did for us in Christ. And then, and only then, does he tell us how we are to live in response to that. This is an important distinction for how we think about commands or laws is an issue that everyone, even non-Christians, deal with. Yet this issue is especially challenging for Christians because we know we're not saved by what we do. So does what we do even matter? You know, Christians have then challenged. If some people say you should do this, well, that's legalism. Others have brought up other things. And yet we know Christ came to set us free. So what does that look like? Or to understand that, we're going to look at three things. First, we're not saved for license, the idea that no one can tell me what to do. And neither are we saved by legalism, let me tell you what to do. But rather, we're saved for liberty. What is true 
leads to what we should do. If you have a bulletin, you can see that on the back. And the first view that is often taught or often understood is that liberty or freedom in life comes when no one else can tell us what to do. Freedom is what Elsa is saying. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And then we've all been catechized in the mantra to let it go, let it go. But what is she singing that we should let it go? She's singing no right, no wrong, no rules for me. When she gets rid of all rules in her life, other people are telling her what to do. That's when she has freedom. And so we're being taught, look, you want freedom. It's license. You have no one else in the world telling you what to do. And we might think, well, that's a secular idea. Christians, we don't believe that. And yet, sadly, many Christians hold a similar idea. Tragically, many American Christians think Christ merely came to deliver us and save us from the punishment of sin, hell. They don't see that he also wants to save us now from the presence of sin. And they think, well, since I've been saved, I can live however I want. And we all know professing Christians who are extremely bitter. They curse regularly. They sleep around. They do all types of things. And they don't have the slightest sense of remorse or guilt. If you bring up Christ, they joyfully even say, oh, I'm saved too. I'm so glad Jesus saved me. And so there's a secular view of license. And sadly, there's a Christian view of license that no one can tell us what to do. Yet we need to say, see, what does God tell us about this? So turn back a couple chapters, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Because this is a verse that many Christians will appeal to. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And they'll say, look, we're saved by grace. It doesn't matter. But we need to read all it says, because verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. In other words, we're saved. God saved us, not for this idea of freedom that you can go do whatever you want, but he saved you so that you could go do good works. Or flip back one book, you might even have it on the same page, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Paul writes there, for you are called to freedom. Okay, yes, we're free, but what does that mean? What is this freedom Christ gives us? And he makes clear, he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, meaning to sin, but through love, serve one another. You know, Paul uses the same language here. We're called. God put a call on our life. You know, we didn't volunteer first. Rather, God chose us first. And God's call was free to free us. But that doesn't mean we're free to sin. That's the Christian license view that we mentioned earlier. It's the idea that free from the law, O oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Well, that might be something people sing, but it's not true. Paul makes clear God freed us not to serve ourselves, but rather to serve others. And he makes this clear because he quotes next chapter 5 verse 14 of Galatians, he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And then these words from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God has a command. He wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But why did God give that law? Why did he give this command to love? Well, because love 
is a reflection of God's character. Every law is given because it helps us to reflect God better. Thus, Christ came freeing us and restoring us so that we could reflect God as he intended us to do. You know, you're most free when you're able to do what you're created to do. And you're most enslaved when you can't do what you were created to do. Thus, the greatest human slavery that has ever existed is spiritual slavery. Because we're born dead in sin. We're born with desires to do the opposite of what we're called to do. And Christ has freed us. He's not only saved us from the penalty of sin, He's made us to be born again so that we want to go serve others. So we can be truly free and love those around us. Let me give an illustration that maybe will help. Consider you're out on a pond or lake and you're rowing in a rowboat and a fish jumps and it lands in your rowboat. Now you could say that fish is free. But it's not a freedom that's very good for the fish. If you really want to free the fish, what do you do? You pick it up and you put it back into its captivity. I didn't hear what you said, Jerry. I said frying pan. Oh, frying pan, even better. But if you, or you can free him by putting him back to what he was created to do, to swim. When he can't be in the realm in which he was supposed to be in water, he's actually not free. If you want to be free in life, you need Christ. So he makes you what you're intended to be. He has restored us to how we were designed, and that is to reflect him. And Galatians mentions that's through love. We'll flip back one more book. Romans chapter, actually, sorry, three more books. Romans chapter 6. So we saw what Ephesians had to say, Galatians. But Ephesians chapter 6, what does it say? Because there's an argument that some might say, well, look. Don't we? And we even talked about this in Sunday school. We don't really know God's grace until sin came in the world. So if I really want people to know about God's grace, I could continue sinning. Because then I'd have to be forgiven. I'd give a lot of grace to God. Or show a lot of his grace to us, I should say. Well, notice Paul's response. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, look, if I keep sinning, grace is going to be given. By no means. How can you who die to sin still live in it? Live in it. Paul quickly rejects this idea. No means should we continue in sin. That idea of license is not what the Bible is teaching. This is even Jesus' words. Flip back a few books to the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28. The words we know so well, often called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus said, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus' mission for us was to tell people to do things. And Jesus is the one who came to free us. So freeing us does not mean, okay, well, then you get to go do whatever you want. Now, some people will quickly go, okay, well, yes, I'll do whatever Jesus told me to do. I'll follow the red letters of the Bible. 
And yet Jesus didn't agree with that. Flip back to Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus is upholding all of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at verses 17 through 20 as you're turning there. This is the beginning of what's famously or often called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is expounding on many of the Ten Commandments. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus is clear. You should follow those commands too. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So to follow all that Jesus commanded us is to follow all of the Bible. Because Jesus goes and expands on that. Now many of you, or at least many of our friends, would be struggling with these ideas though because laws, they seem so restrictive. You know, we're told to be free like Elsa. You know, in a couple months there will be many graduations, high school graduations, maybe some kindergarten graduations, college graduations, and there will be someone who speaks. And in the last 30, 50 years, I'm sure there are very few speeches where the main point was, and go out and obey the rules. But I'm sure there are many speeches that were said, go out and follow your heart. Go out and do what is passionate to you without any concern. <coughs> and rather, that's what God wants you to do. No, we are not a society that encourages rule following. Those people, they're moralistic. They're Boy Scouts, goody two-shoes. Rather, we want the rebel. We consider them cool, free. If you rebel against the rules, that's life-giving. When I was in junior high, uh, the Isuzu vehicle company came out with a commercial for their Isuzu rodeo, and it showed children in an elementary class coloring on pages, and in the background, the teacher, very stern, was saying, the, uh, stay within the lines, the lines are your friends, and all the children are duly fully coloring within the lines, and then you see this one girl get this kind of sinister smile, and as they're saying the line, stay within the lines, the lines are your friends, then it starts playing this rock music, and she starts scratching all over her page, and then it transitions to her being a teenager, driving her Zuzu Rodeo and going off the road. What's the point? Hey, life is found when you go outside the lines. Rules are made to be broken, we say. Don't follow rules. Yet, Jesus here is teaching us to follow rules. How did Jesus miss this? Well, his brother explained it to us, James 1.25. It's because the law is the law of liberty. Yes, the New Testament does critique certain laws. It critiques more a mindset of the law. And that is when you think, if I'm keeping this law, I'm going to be made right with God. If you have that view of the law, the New Testament says that is death. Yet if you're not looking at the law to save you, but rather to guide you as a saved person, then Romans 7.12 says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Yet, how could a law ever be good? How could it be freeing and joyful? Don't laws only restrict? Well, yes, laws restrict us, but sometimes restrictions create wonderful opportunities. 
You might wish to fly, but the law of gravity keeps you rooted to the earth. However, but by being rooted to the earth, you can dance. Without gravity, you can't dance. Or, some of you may remember my friend and missionary Richie, who spent some time in India. And as you probably know or have seen, he also conveyed, there, if there are any traffic rules, most people are not following them. So what does it mean to get from one part of the city to the other? It means a massive amount of people and animals and all types of things trying to get through with a lot of yelling, shouting, horns beeping, because there's chaos, because no one follows the rules. Come here to most countries in the West, and we got rules all over the place. Stop signs, yield signs, speed limit signs, do not enter signs. And then we got lines. This line tells you this, this line tells you that. But what does that allow us to do? To go zooming down the interstate. To get across town without having to constantly be yelling or honking our horns. The laws actually free us to get where we're going in a faster fashion. God's law is the law of liberty. Laws, if rightly given, don't remove our liberty. They enhance our liberty and freedom. So God's commands are not shackles to keep us from fun. Rather, they're boundaries showing us where and how we live to our fullest enjoyment. And so, the first idea that many people, whether secular or Christians, is, well, look, if I want to be free, I need to do whatever comes natural, whatever's in my heart. And yet the Bible is contradicting that. Christ did not save us to follow whatever we want. We're saved to follow his law of love. And yet there's another trap, and that is that the laws are there for us to be saved by them. This is the second point, not saved by legalism. Let me tell you what to do. Now, legalism is a word that's not found in the Bible. But rather, it describes two different errors that the Bible addresses, and we still see in the church today. The first error of legalism is thinking that by doing what is right, by obeying the law, you earn God's favor. You know, if you do enough good things, or at least more good than bad, then God will bless you. Our good deeds, not God's grace, is what many people think is most important. Now, I've mentioned before, after college, I helped with the ministry, and we would, go out, we would evangelize. And the tool we used is we would ask people if they could tell us the Ten Commandments. And they would say yes or no, and they'd say how many they could answer. And then we'd show them how many did you get, and then we'd ask them, how many do you think you have broken? And they'd say three or five or seven. And they would always follow it up by saying, well, how many do you think you can break and God will still let you into heaven? And every single time, and I probably did this at least 50 to 70 times, every single time, they always said one or two more than they had just said they'd broken. So if they said they'd broken three, then you could break four or five or more and get into heaven. If they'd said they'd broken seven, well, you can break eight or nine and get into heaven. It was this idea that, look, what I'm doing is going to get me into heaven. Our goodness is what matters. And sometimes even professing Christians fall into this situation. You know, they think, look, it's not what I do that will save me, but there's what we need to do for God to continue to bless me. You know, you might need to be baptized, they might say. Or you might need to do some other act. You've got to do this for God to bless you. For others, you need to 
be filled with the Spirit or have some second blessing or something that you must have done or you must do so that your life is blessed. And yet the Bible is clear. We read it earlier, Romans 2. All you need for life and godliness is given to you in Christ. He and He alone saves us. And this first error sometimes shows up when we turn the message of the Bible into moralism. This has been a common idea in the U.S. as more and more people are saying things like, or putting on shirts, choose kindness, be kind, stop hate. Now, I'm for all those things. We should choose kindness. We should be kind. We should stop hate. Yet the primary message of Christianity is not to be moral. The message of our church is not choose kindness. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Niceness is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where we all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce a new kind of man. The Bible's teaching is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. What he's trying to say is, look, often people are saying, well, the Christian message is choose kindness, be nice. And I'm not necessarily attacking those people, but that's not primarily the Christian message. The Christian message is not be moral. The Christian message is you're dead in your sins. And yet God in his grace came down to make you alive, a new creature. And so legalism falls into this. But there's a second era of legalism. And it's creating standards beyond what the Bible says and thinking that by keeping them, you're better than others. Now, that definition is really important. It's creating standards beyond what the Bible says and thinking that by keeping them, you're better than others. As we've already seen, just to want to obey what the Bible says is not legalism. That's good. As well, this definition includes that you think you're better than others. You know, let's take something very, very basic. Maybe you realize, as I sometimes do, I'm using my phone too much. I'm too much on social media. I'm too much on electronics. And so I set up an app. And I decide I'm only going to use this for 30 minutes. Well, that might be a great thing for me. But then it becomes legalism when I go, Arnold's on his phone for 31 minutes. He's not really as righteous as I am. He's not redeeming the time. He's sinning. If he was holy, he'd get the time-saving app so he could honor God. And we begin to look down, and you laugh, but we all know we do this in so many ways. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we do all these things, we start thinking, I'm a little better than that person. They're not really committed to Christ as much as I am, and most of these things are extra things beyond the Bible. Again, it's not bad to have those extra things. For me, it might be helpful to have an app that says, I can't use social media more than 30 minutes. That's not wrong to have extra thing. It's when I start thinking I'm better than you, 
because of my extra rules that I've fallen into the error of legalism. You know, this is what Jesus' parable in Luke 18 is all about. When the Pharisee and the tax collector are praying, and the Pharisee doesn't just say the things he does, but he adds, God, I thank you that I'm better than other men. I'm not like other men. And yet, as you study, if you go back and read the history, the Pharisees believed in grace. It's that they then added upon what God had to do with what they did. Thus, the issue and the second aspect of legalism is our motivation. Why am I obeying and what do I think that merits me or earns me before God? You see, legalism is not merely obeying laws. Legalism is obeying laws with the thought that by doing them, I'm better than others. It's self-justification. But rather, we should trust in Christ, what he did, and hope in his salvation for us. And then in response to what he's done for us, we desire to obey his rules. Obeying is not legalism. That's love. That's why Jesus said, it's in our bulletin, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And it's interesting, these first two errors, license or legalism, at root, they both stem from a lack of trust in God and his goodness. Legalism and license are two sides of the same coin, a coin that doubts God. Well, why is that? Well, because both think, look, God has really good things, but for me to get them, I got to go around him. License says, you know, he gave me rules, they're not really good. I got to follow what I think is best. I can't trust God's rules for me. Legalism says, well, God doesn't actually want to give me good things, so I got to go obey, and then I'll kind of force his hand, and then he'll have to give me good things. And both of them are doubting that God is good. And the gospel reminds us, God is good. He does love us. He has given us everything. And that leads to our last section, saved for liberty. What is true leads to what we should do. Flip back to Ephesians. This is in Ephesians 4. It begins with these words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You know, the therefore is saying, look, this is an implication. This is because of what's come before it. Well, what's come before it? Well, that took us 22 sermons, so we're not going to give everything. But there are some things that we can highlight. Because, look, he's about to turn. He's about to give us 40 imperatives. And yet those are flowing from all the things that he said before this. Our obedience flows from what God did for us. So let's just reflect on seven true things. If you have the little sheet I put, you'll see them there. Otherwise, I'll try and go through. So let's flip back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing else for you to get spiritually besides what Christ has given you. You're not going to find it in breaking all the rules. You're not going to find it in obeying all the rules. Christ has given you everything. Second, Ephesians 1.4. At the end of verse 4, now I know I'm jumping, but we don't want to take 22 weeks. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He loves us so much that he adopted us into his family. We're not just his servants, though we are. We are his children. Third, Ephesians 1, 7 declares, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
There is no sin you have to pay for, work off, or hope is forgotten. Rather, it was completely forgiven by the blood of Christ. Fourth, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. I'm just going to kind of summarize that. He's talking about the inheritance that every believer has that is secure in Christ for all eternity. An inheritance that is far better than anything you'll ever have on this earth. So you don't need to go and think, I have to break all the rules or obey all the rules. You have every blessing for all eternity. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, because when did God do this? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead, even when we were running from God, he then gave us all of this goodness and made us alive. So why would we think that we then need to go do things to make him give us good stuff? We don't. He has given us everything, even when we were rebelling. Sixth, Ephesians 3, 6 talks about how this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Every single believer, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, and we could add any category, every believer in Christ has all the promises given to them. You don't need to go do something so you can get the extra bonus pack for Christians. There's no speed pass line. In Christ, you have everything. Not only is all of that true, but 7th, Ephesians 3.16, we pray that we might, according to the riches of His glory, He may grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The laws He's given for our good that our sinful flesh still doesn't want to obey. He's given us the power to obey by His Spirit. And I was really struck by this verse as I was listening to someone kind of talk about it. And they were saying, look, consider the fears we have about certain commands. Oh man, you know, that Ephesians 5 stuff, it's telling me how to be a dad, be a father, but never had a dad. I can't do this. How am I supposed to obey? Well, this was written to people who had no Christian parents. These were first-generation Christians. They were given the Holy Spirit. They have all the power that exists. Resurrection power. You can obey the commands. I, don't, I, I can't do this loving, forgiveness, patience stuff. In my family, I grew up with grudges, attacking each other. You have the power of the Spirit. You know, we sing. We want people to know that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me it comes from the spirit so all of this this is true it's eternally that we are eternally securely unchangeably loved we've been resurrected from death to life we now by the spirit are called and empowered to lead holy lives so what is true is stated before what we should do and not the other way around so Paul didn't begin his letter with chapters 4 through 6. All of these commands and then say, Therefore, if you do chapters, what would then be 1 through 3, God will love you. God will predestine you. God will choose you. He will adopt you. No. All that God did for us in Christ is stated. Then in response to that, we act. God acts. We react. 
We love because he first loved us. And you may have always thought, you know, the Bible is a bunch of rules telling me how to live my life. And yet, that's not true. God's love for us is what compels us to keep his rules, not vice versa. And this isn't just Ephesians. It's not like, okay, this is some kind of really kind of my new thing that Jeremy kind of wrestled out of the passage. You could read the book of Romans, first eight chapters, all about what God has done. Chapters 9 through 16, all about how we should do. Colossians, first two chapters, all about what God has done. Three and four, all about what we should do. It's even in the Ten Commandments. We had that read for us, but let's turn there because I want to point this out. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where the commandments are. And if you see pictures of the Ten Commandments, they'll often begin with verse 3. But verse 3 is not the beginning of what God said. Verse 1 is the beginning. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what do the Ten Commandments begin with? They begin with God reminding them, I'm your deliverer. I'm your savior. I'm the one who loves and cares for you. Thus God didn't give the Ten Commandments as an instruction or guide on how to be loved by God. Well, Israel, if you want me to love you, if you want me to save you, here's these commands, go and keep them. No, the commands are given as people who are loved. How should they live in the fact, in light of the fact that they are saved? You imagine you're there with college age Jeremy asking you, well, how many of these commandments can you break and still going to heaven? The answer is not one or two more than you did. It's you can break all of them. Because God is your deliverer. He has sent a redeemer. And so you can break every single command. And God through Jesus has paid the price. And so you can break them all. And know that there is forgiveness. There is hope. And then they are a great guide as a rule to know how to respond in love for someone who's done so much for us. So, we've obviously not moved far into chapter 4 of Ephesians, but we've made an important first step. We have seen that as we transition from God's declarations and actions of love to our response, we should see the commands in that light. It's not, okay, there was 22 weeks of wonderfulness, okay, now i got to bear through however long he drones on about do this, do that, do that. These are wonderful gifts from God. They're the law of liberty that will be our joy to do. So delight in obeying God because of what he did for us in Christ. After my freshman year of college, before I went for this other ministry, I went and worked for a camp in Tennessee. And part of our orientation, uh, the assistant camp director guided us into and through a cave. Now, to get into this cave, you had to get down and slide. It was about two feet tall and about three feet wide. You had to slide down on your butt, or you could go on your stomach and get in. But then, thankfully, the room opened up. It was pretty tall, probably 20 feet high, and you could all stand in there. And he then asked, would we like to go to the back portion? Well, wanting people's approval is a powerful incentive, and all the people who said yes were the people I liked. So I went along. I didn't want to go along, but we started going. And to get to the back portion, you have to go through a spot that's about 
three feet, four feet tall. So you have to get on your hands and knees and crawl. And we go down this shaft, and then we get to a room that opens up, and I can breathe a little. And then he goes, you know, I've never gone this way, but you can kind of go under this rock. And people start debating, should we go? And I'm sitting there thinking of all the Reader's Digest I read as a kid. We're going to be back there, out of a flashlight, huddling till the rescue team comes, and I'm going to be mad. And then one of them goes, I'm going to try. And he goes under. And he goes, hey, there's another room, let's keep going. And everyone else goes, yes. And I'm like, <laughs> what's the issue? I don't trust the guide. The guide wants to have fun. He wants excitement. I just want to see daylight again. You know, if you trust your guide, then you can know what they're telling you is good. The guide of life cares about you. He doesn't just care about you. He sent his son to die for you. So, the rules he's given us, they're not to, oh yeah, this one's really going to get him hot. Oh, let's give him this rule. That'll make him cringe. He gave us the rules to liberate us, to free us. So as we turn, and we'll go a little faster, let us delight in obeying God because of what he did for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy to see the rules as just a burden Oh, another thing to do. And yet, Lord, you love us. You sent your son to die for us. And so we know that your goodness and your care gave those rules to us. So may we delight in you. May we delight in obeying your rules, knowing that you do care for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.